Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host, and I'm also the director of Creating a Family. You can check us out at creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about evaluating risk factors in international adoption. We're going to be talking with Dr. Judith Eckerly. She is the medical director of the Adoption Medicine Clinic at the University of Minnesota. She assists families both pre and post adoption with consultation, referral, as well as clinical services. Her academic interests include FASD research, which is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, uh, adoption and foster care issues, as well as global advocacy for children. She is also an adult transracial international adoptee. Welcome, Dr. Eckerly, to Creating a Family. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me today. You know, when parents first start thinking about adoption and in particular international adoption, it's pretty overwhelming because there's so many things they need to to think through. And we encourage that. We want people to think through the risk factors. We want them to think and analyze what they're the best, they can be the best parents for, what type of conditions they should consider. Oftentimes, you know, a standard thing that we see is that they're given a checklist and say, check these, check what you're willing to consider, which, you know, there's nothing like that to put fear in your heart when you sit there and you see this list, right? (laughs) And you think, oh my gosh. So what we're going to do today is try to demystify some of that. This is not intended to be a deep dive into any of these risk factors, okay? But so, and let me just tell everyone, we have courses and material on our website, as well as courses on just about every, in fact, probably all of these. Uh, Some just a course on each of them individually. So never fear, you can go and get detailed information on these risk factors. Today, we're just going to be hitting hitting the high points. So without further ado, buckle up. We're going to jump in and and, Mm -hmm. and run through them, all right? The first one is is obviously a big one, and we're starting with it for, for a reason, and that is prenatal exposure. So let me just start general. How, uh, Dr. Eckerly, how common is prenatal exposure in international adoptions that you are seeing now? I'm not talking historically, because I think things were different 20 years ago, but what from what you're seeing now, how common is it? Yeah, well, just to comment on, on the checklist, it, it can be so daunting for parents. And so um, just to let them know, we'll run through these uh, today. Um, but we also have a pre-adoption consultation that we can do personally with parents to go through those checklists because some of the checklists look different from one another and um, Googling things is always really difficult. So uh, we can mm-hmm. certainly go into more detail with that. Um, and it's especially important right now because for the prenatal exposure piece, um, we haven't looked formally in the last couple of years, but I did look formally uh, a while back. Um, And in that time, even just for Korea, we were seeing about 60 to 70% with prenatal exposures. Uh, And if you include other countries like Colombia, uh, we probably are, you know, still around that, that, that same rate at this point, because places like China and India probably have a little bit fewer prenatal exposures, but places like Colombia and Korea tend to have somewhat more prenatal exposures to different substances. What about the former Soviet countries, the stands and the, I'm not even, it, it depends on when we're asking which ones are open, but the Eastern European countries, uh, what are you seeing there? Yeah, we're seeing very few referrals from Eastern Europe these days. And the, the referrals that we do see either typically have pretty significant prenatal exposures and or uh, fairly significant medical needs that are known. So uh, for instance, we had a, a child with an open spina bifida defect the other day. 
uh, who's doing great, but has you know major medical needs and, and physical issues because of that. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're just numbers wise, we're seeing very few referrals from the for, former Soviet black countries. The ones that we do see though, tended to have uh, significant rates of prenatal exposures, especially okay. alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So just, uh, does it matter, uh, how much prenatal, let's, let's start with alcohol. Uh, you mentioned alcohol, uh, and there's been, whether for fortunate or unfortunate, there's been a great deal of research on the impact of alcohol on developing fetuses. So does it matter how much and when in the pregnancy alcohol is used? Yeah. So in this very brief time that we have, um, I'll kind of limit it to to very general answers. It matters how much. Uh, Probably doesn't matter as much the time during the pregnancy because the brain is actually developing throughout the pregnancy and even then for the first several years of life pretty rapidly. Um, And then, you know, until you're in your mid-20s. So uh, alcohol can affect the brain at any point, but uh, amount matters. And I'm typically more concerned about uh, frequent and sustained use during pregnancy and or the binge exposure, which is four drinks at a sitting or more. And the reality is we often don't have good information in the referrals to be able to really assess that. That's just kind of the, the impact. I mean, that's just kind of the reality of, um, so you have to kind of make judgments oftentimes in consultation with an adoption medical specialist uh, looking at other information, other social information. In the referral. Okay. So alcohol, uh, just in, in, to to be very short, causes brain damage. And and the brain damage looks like what in, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about school-aged kids or preschoolers, and then they go ahead and, and tell us whether children will outgrow that. Right. So interestingly, you know, even if you look at children of alcoholic birth mothers, for instance, who drink you know, significant amounts of alcohol every day throughout the pregnancy, let's say, uh, only about 50% of their kids will be on the FASD spectrum. So it is very interesting to think about that. And so I also encourage parents to, you know, when we kind of do a deeper dive, to think about certain limited amounts of alcohol that might be listed in a referral, because not all alcohol will necessarily cause uh, definite FASD or even cause high risk for it. But if a child does have significant alcohol exposure, if their brain was affected, then a, a preschool or school-aged child, the average age of diagnosis for FASD is around four to six years old, which is kind of when they're starting school. And a lot of that is because you know a, a two-year-old who has impulsive tendencies or doesn't listen very well or is not able to sit still for half an hour for circle time, you know that's expected. A two-year-old just mm-hmm. doesn't usually have those abilities. Right. But when you're sick and you still can't do those things and other kids can, that's when it starts to be more obvious. And so a lot of times, um, most of the kids on the FASD spectrum have what we call normal IQ, or they have like normal overall brain functioning that is working, but they have certain areas that isn't working as well or was impacted by the alcohol. So things like impulsiveness and um, what we call executive functioning or understanding cause and effect, being able to, um, you know, hold their impulses back, things like that can be really affected and can really impact children as they grow and, you know, into adulthood. Okay. So what type of drugs, either legal or illegal, are you most commonly seeing now in children being referred for international adoption? For international adoption, we see a decent amount of smoking, so cigarettes or tobacco. We see a decent amount of opioids and we see a decent amount of cocaine. We don't tend to see much methamphetamine from overseas. We see more methamphetamine you know, from, from domestic or U.S. 
Okay. So now let's go down that list. Let's start with cigarettes. I think a lot of people don't think of cigarettes as having an impact uh, on, on developing fetuses. So but let's start with cigarettes because I think that's probably one of the most common uh, substances we see that uh, uh, mothers, especially in international adoption, are, are using. So what, what impact do cigarettes have on children? So I'm generally less concerned about tobacco exposure for most kids. Uh, if you look at the studies, if you have, are exposed to half a pack of cigarettes, it's about 10 cigarettes per day or less, then there doesn't really seem to be a long-term effect when you look at kind of the group effects or you know long-term exposure. Um, if you, let's say you had a birth mother who smacked, uh, smoked pack a day uh, or more, um, the, the studies have shown about a 20% risk of minor learning or attention issues. Um, and baseline population risk is somewhere between three to 6%. So it's never 0%, uh, but it is shown to have potentially an effect on, on kind of the learning or attention uh, and to a more mild or minor degree. Um, and the most common effect that we know from, from smoking or tobacco exposure is low birth weight. And so generally, if a baby is born and they were normal growth and normal weight at birth, then I'm even less concerned because if it didn't affect their body and their growth, then I'm hopeful that it wouldn't have affected the brain. I don't have evidence based for that statement, but um, generally kids who are exposed to, to cigarettes or tobacco are doing pretty well. Okay, now we'll move on to opioids. Um, and I think people often make uh, a distinction between legal and illegal. So let's, uh, let's make that distinction if you see one. What is the impact on, on pregnancy or, and, and the developing baby in, uh, of, of the maternal use of opioids? Yeah, if they're using opioids during pregnancy, then typically, even if they're you know, quote unquote prescribed, um, then it, they're not typically using it in a prescribed manner or in a, a way that we would usually want. Um, that said, opioids as a group, so that includes uh, Percocets and uh, methadone and heroin and fentanyl and Suboxone. I mean, there's all sorts of different forms of opioids. Uh, in general, if you look at the long-term studies, and especially if you look at the adoption studies, there doesn't seem to be a significant long-term effect on these kids, which was pretty surprising, I think, to mm -hmm. most of us, you know, because you would think that it would impact the brain and development. Um, but in general, if you look at the studies, again, as a group, uh, their general IQ scores, their general learning, um, everything tends to look uh, pretty similar to the kids who are not exposed. So um, the initial withdrawal period um, and the social risks that go along with a, you know, a birth parent that's abusing um, different forms of opioids is you know, separate in socioeconomic factors. Uh, but in general, these kids tend to do pretty well long term. So I'm less concerned about opioids as a group. Yeah, that's, I think that's surprising to, to a lot of people. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, particularly because yeah, we think of alcohol as being a lesser, imp but from a teratogenic impact, it's, it's substantially greater. So it's, it's absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's talk about cocaine then. So cocaine is similar to opioids, and we actually have good long-term studies on this. And I have an acquaintance who, you know, based his entire career on the, you know, quote unquote, crack baby epidemic back in the 80s and 90s, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, wanted to study the long term effects and see how they did and show the deficits. And, you know, he studied and studied for decades. And he's like, yeah, they're all doing pretty well. <laughs> so um, he's like, but you know, it's still a finding. So, uh, but you know, he built his whole career on what deficits these kids were going to have. And, and when we look again, as a group, and again, you know, you have to factor in things like socioeconomic status and uh, prenatal stress and postnatal stress and, you know, other, you know, what we call ACEs or uh, adverse childhood experiences, of course. But when you, especially when you look at the adoption studies of these kids raised in households that were, you know, hopefully stable and had, um, you know, a decent level of socioeconomic status, 
they are as a group doing uh, just as well as kids who were not cocaine exposed, which was again very surprising to research groups when we, when we mm -hmm. you know found these general findings. Mm -hmm. Of course, smaller studies can always find certain deficits in anything that you study, um, but the, the larger scale studies and then especially, like I said, the adoption studies of not being raised in the household that was abusing cocaine or other opioids um, are very encouraging, actually. Are children who were exposed in the womb to opiates, cocaine, or other, uh, other either stimulants or, or depressive type of, of medications, are they more, or are drugs, are they more likely uh, to abuse drugs when and when they become adolescents or adults? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I don't think anybody has a uh, definitive answer at this point, but all of the research tends to point towards addiction as being a very multifactorial uh, issue. So it doesn't have to do with necessarily prenatal exposure or genetics. I mean, probably some of that impacts somewhat but it's just so multifactorial. And the reasons that people abuse opioids or cocaine or other drugs is typically to numb or to self-medicate an underlying issue. So let's say they're self-medicating um, mental illness that they have. Um, then mental illness, uh, as we'll talk about a little bit uh, further down the list, uh, does have heritable or genetic factors towards it. But if they were self-medicating their own, you know, their own childhood ACE score or uh, adverse childhood effects, which is uh, parental divorce and being abused when they're children or having a authoritarian household or things like that. Um, you know, those are things that they're self-medicating that would not be heritable then as long as they're being raised in a, a healthier environment. So it's very multifactorial. I would not say as a general rule that we consider prenatal exposures uh, or even genetic factors as definitive risk for um, them being uh, addicted or um, having problems with substances later in life. Okay, and the last drug I want to talk about is marijuana. Uh, it, we often don't have really good detailed information on referrals about marijuana use, but uh, that may be changing. So let's talk about the impact of pot on, again, on uh, a, a maternal use of pot on, on children as they grow. I don't see a lot of marijuana mentioned in international referrals. Um, we see it much more in domestic referrals, especially mm -hmm. with some of the legalization. But uh, in general, again, there haven't been a lot of studies. So we've, we've definitely studied opioid exposure in big, large-scale studies. Same thing with cocaine. Marijuana, there just aren't typically that many women who are addicted, per se, or smoking marijuana every day of their pregnancy in order to study it. In general, the studies look fairly similar to cigarettes uh, in that it could probably cause low birth weight, there could be other substances mixed in. Um, but in general, the, the, the teratogenic or the effects on the brain or um, ability for that particular drug to make changes to, to the developing fetus do not seem to be that significant. So I'm generally fairly optimistic still about a child who's otherwise doing well, um, who was exposed to marijuana. Uh, the caveat to that is that I don't like the synthetic marijuanas, the kind that are sold in like um, chop shops or kind of the smoke shops or, you know, the, the shops that are selling kind of the quote unquote legal forms of synthetic marijuana. That actually um, is uh, equivalent to about rat poison. I mean, it really is not a good thing to put in your body. So, um, so I'm much more concerned when I see synthetic marijuana. Interesting. Okay. All right. Now moving on. Uh, and this one is often not something that is listed as a on the checklist that parents are special needs checklist. However, we get a lot of questions about this. And you mentioned it a second ago. And that is 
prenatal stress, you know, and it, of course, in not every situation is a child that is being placed for adoption uh, coming from a, a, a situation where the uh, mom was stressed during her pregnancy. But oftentimes that is the case. Uh, mm -hmm. And so what do we know about the impact of a stressful pregnancy, what, for, regardless of the cause, regardless if it's because they're considering adoption, which is stressful in itself, or because they're extremely poor, or because the child was conceived through some type of a rape, rape or incest or whatever. So what do we know about stress and its impact? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge topic. I, I think the bottom line is that we know that prenatal stress can impact developing uh, babies in utero and probably because of some of the stress hormones that are secreted. Um, there's a lots written on cortisol, which is our stress hormone, which is secreted when we um, have to be interviewed, for instance, and, uh, you know, if it's mildly stressful and you uh, secrete a little cortisol and then it helps you be more alert and, you know, kind of talk about things. And, uh, but if you were stressed 24 hours a day, uh, you know, seven days a week for nine months, that's a different kind of stress and it takes a different kind of toll on the body. So um, having constant cortisol secretion and um, kind of being bathed in, in utero is probably uh, not something that's super healthy for a developing brain and for a developing fetus. And that's why I think at the beginning of my career, I used to think, oh, they were adopted right at birth. They're fine, right? There's nothing to worry about. They're gonna be fine. They were always in a supportive environment. And then we started seeing these kids, you know, I've seen kids even recently who are four or five and their stress responses, their kind of trauma responses are exactly the same as kids who spent a year or two in orphanage care, for instance. Um, and it's just very interesting when you look at kind of the, uh, you know, how, how they react to their environments um, because we're, we're now realizing more and more that that prenatal environment can cause uh, long-term uh, effects which are absolutely ameliorated by, you know, good parenting, good family and therapy. Um, but oftentimes uh, parents do have that, that, you know, that image in their heads that uh, as long as they weren't stressed when they were born, that everything's going to be fine. And we actually know that that prenatal stress can cause effects. Mm -hmm. Big news, everyone. The Jockey Bean Family Foundation has provided us with scholarships for free access to five of our most popular courses. You can find these courses and the coupon code at the website bit.ly slash JBF support. That is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash all cap J-B-F then cap S for support. So J-B-F-S, that's all capitalized, and then U-P-P-O-R-T. Uh, again, the coupon code to get you these courses free is going to be on that page as well. And the courses are Raising Resilient Kids with Dr. Ken Ginsberg, Raising a Child with ADHD to a Successful and Healthy Adulthood with Dr. Ned Hallowell, Unexpected Stresses for Newly Adoptive Parents, Practical Solutions to Typical Food Issues with Dr. Katja Rao, and Parenting Children Who Have Experienced Trauma with Karen Buckwalter. Make sure you go to the bit.ly slash JBF support to get information on these courses. Okay, now let's move on to mental illnesses. Uh, how heritable 
are mental illnesses. And if it helps, uh, let's talk about some specific, because I suspect the, the genetic connections may differ depending on the type. But let, I'll, I'll let you start in general, talk about the genetic connection with mental illnesses, and then we can talk about specific ones. Yeah, so for you know some of the major uh, mental illnesses like depression or bipolar or schizophrenia, um, you know, we're talking about major mental illness. So we're not talking about, you know, like you were in college and you broke up with your boyfriend and your grandfather passed away and, you know, it's a stressful time and you took mm -hmm. antidepressants. That's really not um, kind of the, the scope of what we're talking about. Um, but for major mental illnesses, I always tell parents that, you know, if you're, if you or your sister or somebody is like a world expert in schizophrenia, they're not going to like what I'm about to say because I'm boiling about you know, 900 textbooks into a <laughs> sentence. Um, and we thank in you. General, right? Uh, these mental illnesses, uh, if a, a parent, a first degree relative, so a parent has a major mental illness, then there's about a 20% risk that the child will develop a mental illness in their lifetime as well. Um, and so what I tell parents is, you know, they're super cute and they're two years old and they're doing great, but if they turn 19 and they're at college and they have a schizophrenic break, do you feel like you as a family could handle that? Because there's about a 20% risk, you know, given that we have a definite history of a birth parent with schizophrenia, you know, how will you feel if that, if that happens? That's the risk. And, and so, you know, just theoretically, we have to be okay with that if you're going to move forward. So it definitely is heritable. We also know, though, that environment also matters. And so uh, in some of the adoption studies, they've shown um, sometimes up to a 50% reduction in risk if they're not raised in a schizophrenic household mm -hmm. then. You know, you can imagine kind of the instability of having, exactly. uh, if, a, if a parent is schizophrenic and not well controlled, then, you know, that could absolutely contribute to mental illness later on in life. But we know that it doesn't go to zero either or to general population risk. So we know that there are some heritable or genetic aspects to mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. And the same would be said about being raised in with one of your parents being bipolar or se uh, severely clinically depressed or all of those. And that makes for a chaotic uh, home environment, which right. raises your risks for all sorts of things, including developing the illness. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything from physical illness to mental illness, actually. Yeah. All right. So how about the heritability or the genetic connection with ADHD? Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Yeah, so probably heritable. What's interesting though is I see kids every day um, in my, my clinic who have the diagnosis of ADHD or suspicion of ADHD who actually don't have ADHD. And, um, and I don't blame general pediatricians or teachers at all because the, the you know, true digging into the neuropsych testing and the you know, full eval that we do with our occupational therapists and psychologists and you know, all the resources that we have at our disposal are, are quite unusual, actually, and, and a lot of pediatrician offices don't have that. Um, and, you know, they have to make some decisions and treatment decisions. But a lot of the kids that we see with ADHD actually don't have it. So it's very interesting to then kind of, you know, think about the risk factors. Um, many of the kids who are labeled ADHD actually have more sensory processing issues. Um, so uh, things like um, not being able to tolerate noise or certain touch or their body feels like they're, you know, they need to move all the time or need input or, or opposite. So um, we see a lot of kids with ADHD or sometimes it's uh, attachment issues or withdrawing or internalization of anxiety or, you know, so we, we actually see so many different variants of this that it's really hard to tell what the heritability is. Uh, true ADHD is probably, you know, somewhat heritable, but it's just uh, percentage wise. I can't even give you a percentage because um, in my opinion, it's just such a variable issue with so many different 
factors involved uh, and, and so many ADHD kids that actually have a lot of other things going on and may actually not be ADHD. Mm-hmm. And, and let's just throw in uh, early life trauma can also mask itself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. All right. What about intelligence or academic success? Yeah. So um, there's definitely a percentage of intelligence that comes from birth parents. And in fact, some of the mitochondrial studies suggest that uh, your intelligence may come more from the mother than the father. So oh, that's <laughs> interesting. Of that. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm making note right now to that's discuss right. this yep. with my... Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, but m- much of that also, again, really variable depending on um, socioeconomic status, uh, opportunities in life, prenatal stress, prenatal exposures, um, you know, so many different factors contribute to what we would consider kind of a, you know, full-scale IQ or kind of that traditional sense of intelligence, um, which also, you know, doesn't always uh, correlate to emotional intelligence or social intelligence or other things. So, you know, in general, I would say uh, there is a correlation between parental and intelligence, but it's so hard to judge, especially uh, with um, international families and, mm-hmm. and people who have poor economic status. Exactly. One of my good friends, uh, who is a brain surgeon, um, his two parents were factory workers. And so, you know, it, and I'm sure they're very smart, actually, but, but they were factory workers because of their socioeconomic status and their opportunities. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can't judge oftentimes on the parental intelligence um, at face value on kind of a piece of paper in terms of how the child is being and quite frankly, in international adoption, you're not going to know a lot of that information. And you can't Absolutely. judge yeah. based on occupation, because as you point out, that's often opportunity. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Now, moving to an issue that is uh, top of mind for, I think uh, we, we talk about it so much, and that's attachment issues. And the reality is we have to look at at the child's social history to kind of make some, uh, as well as their life history, to make some assessments. How common do you feel like attachment issues are with international adoption just in general? I actually think that they're very common, but I also think that the majority of those are pretty mild. Um, and I also think that the majority of those that are pretty mild are actually oftentimes not recognized very well by pediatricians. Again, I don't blame them at all. This is just not their, you know, main area of expertise, um, and parents, because, uh, you know, we get told so many things in international adoption about, you know, what's normal, quote unquote normal, you know, um, that I think sometimes we normalize behaviors and don't recognize them as anxiety or attachment and things like that. Um, and so I think the earlier we can all recognize what might be attachment and uh, healthy bonding, the better we are off in terms of getting help, appropriate help and making sure that those, you know, get better because we can do so much with those, especially exactly. early in life. So I think maybe that's the, 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 to help allay some of the fears to realize that much of the, many of the attachment issues are relatively mild and are amenable to parenting. Absolutely. Well, yeah, parenting with good professional advice. I mean, I yes. would say a lot of these uh, do need some professional therapist advice. And um, our pediatric psychologist, who I think is sometimes like a magician, I mean, I just don't know how she does some of these things, but um, she really advocates for zero, it's called zero to three attachment. And um, there's something called circle of security that mm-hmm. is uh, international and can locate therapists in different parts of the country and the world. So 
um, you know, finding someone who's familiar with these on an evidence-based level can be really helpful to families. It absolutely can. And people are so quick to diagnose reactive attachment disorder, RAD. Oh, right. And, right. <laughs> and, and, and people are terrified of it because the, yes. the, the, the most people assume, well, if it's, you know, you can just write that kid off. So, uh, so we're on the spectrum of, of, and I do try to always point this out, that attachment is not a, it's, it's not binary. It's not either you are or you're not. It is a right. spectrum that right. we are looking at. So where is RAD and what are the highest risk factors for, if not RAD, but anything on the very extreme end of attachment? Yeah, reactive attachment disorder. I mean, I think, you know, again, I, I think the world of our pediatric psychologist and I, I can in the 14 years that I've been practicing now for specifically international adoption and adoption related issues. I mean, I think I can remember four kids. So I truly think had reactive attachment disorder out of thousands. So yeah. it is yeah. not common. Um, I would say definite risk factors are, you know, a severe early trauma history. Um, uh, number two would be older age at adoption because then they have had less time to ameliorate those, you know, early traumas and to get help. And, and then, a, you know, a family again, uh, we want families, as you started out this podcast, and you know this. We want families to always be prepared for the child uh, child's needs that are going to come into their home, and and vice versa. We want the right child for the family and the family for the child. And if parents think you know that simple love will be enough, sometimes it is. Most of the time, it is not. And so, just understanding the needs of the child prior to them coming into the home, I think, is by far the most important thing. Um, because if you do have a child with early severe history, older age of adoption, and you know, your expectation is that just being in a family will, will cure all of that, I think that's actually a risk factor for that reactive attachment disorder um, because then they don't get the kind of immediate and intensive uh, counseling and therapy uh, interventions that they would probably need. Yeah, we try to tell people it's not, it's not love only, it's love and. I mean, we want you to, of course, and, and exactly. intense love that throw yourself in front of a bus type of love is, immen is immensely helpful and curious. Absolutely. Yes. But this is not yes. only, it's not that alone. Right. Yeah. Use That's that right. love to motivate you to get help from professionals who can give you more tools in addition right. to this love that you feel. Right. right. All right. Totally agree. Okay, now neglect. Um, neglect takes many forms uh, and, and it can mask itself as poverty, but it also can be neglect of having a, a single caretaker, having enough caretakers. It could be not enough food. It could be any number of things. How common is neglect in the children you see coming from in, uh, coming to the U.S. through international adoption? So any child that spent time in orphanage care or institutionalization, I would say has, has experienced what we usually call benign neglect, sometimes not benign neglect. Um, but uh, any child who comes from orphanage care or institutionalization, I think you have to expect that they had um, at the minimum benign neglect of their basic needs. Um, and most of these kids were fed, you know, it's kind of a standard amount and they uh, had kids around them, but you know, I mean, I, I have a child at home who has wet the bed in the middle of the night or has, you know, had a nightmare or things like that. And if you think about those things and having absolutely zero uh, people to respond to that child in the middle of the night or, you know, they're hungry, they are going through a growth spurt and they're hungry and, and having no one to give them a snack or extra food or, you know, 
those kinds of things add up over time. So um, I think we have to expect that um, in international adoption, if you're adopting from a country that participates in an orphanage or institutionalization, uh, that you have to, you know, expect some form of neglect and, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and kind of, you know, hopefully benign neglect. And I have spent time and work at orphanages for about 15 years now. And even high quality, good orphanages, there is, you know, institutionalization in general is just not good for children. Children are not meant right. to be raised in large, in large communal groups uh, with even very caring adults. Um, right. And, and, you know, we see places like cottage systems, which are better for mm -hmm. sure. Um, but even those, the caregivers typically rotate in and out. You know, they have yes. different caregivers day to day. They don't have one dependent person that really cares for them on a day to day basis. And so even those, you know, are better, but I would not say that they are um, as good as things like foster care or having a, you know, permanency. Mm -hmm. I would, yeah, I would agree with that. All right. Now, physical abuse. How common is that that you see in the referrals that you're looking at? How common is that? I would say not common. We see it mentioned sometimes and we see things, uh, for instance, like from uh, rural places in different countries, we've had kids who were abandoned like in a forest or something and had animals um, attack them. So we've had, you know, uh, experience of physical harm to kids either by adults or by uh, other children or by uh, animals if they're out kind of exposed to the elements. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we would see as much or maybe even more than kind of documented physical abuse of, you know, like taking baby or things like that. I, so yeah, we don't see it frequently, but we, we definitely see it from kind of any country as possible. And the hard part is that what, how do we define abuse? What uh, one person would define, what we might hear define as abuse is perceived in that country or in that institution where the child is coming from as punishment or discipline. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that oftentimes we, and oftentimes the abuse may be coming from older children in the institution as well. So exactly. we, and yeah. we don't see that. That's almost never reported. Uh, right. Neither are reported in the referral. So the reality is you simply, you probably don't know. Right. And, and we've had, um, you know, like four or five year olds come home from orphanage care that, that the orphanage care, I think, was was very good. Right. Like good for orphanage care. Um, but they've told us about, you know, some of the physical things that happened to them from older kids in the orphanage or mm -hmm. from impaired children in the orphanage who, you know, didn't really understand what they were doing. And um, so, yeah, it can it can definitely occur even in kind of the quote unquote best of, of orphanage or other care. And that leads us into the abuse that's perhaps most frightening for parents, and that is sexual abuse. How common, here's, I'm going to ask you two different questions. How common is it in the referrals, and then how common is it in international adoption? Because I think we need to make a distinction between how often it is reported versus how common it might be. I think for uh, overall, it is very uncommon for it to be reported in the referrals. Uh, from Colombia specifically, we see a lot more children who have reported documented either physical or sexual abuse or both, which is the reason why they were, you know, uh, put into care. But uh, from other countries, and, you know, Colombia is a fairly small referral country. So in general, I would say it's not common for those to be seen on referrals. How common do you think it is with children who've been raised in institutions? I think it's probably uh, more common the older you get. And so the older age of adoption, I mean, the just more risk factors you have for uh, having been sexualized by adults or other children at the orphanage care. 
um, or at foster care or other, you know, uh, group care. Um, any child who is over the age of five, we typically, you know, even if it's not mentioned, we'll typically test for sexually transmitted illnesses, you know, at the time of referral, which is common, you know, some of them blood test wise are, you know, like HIV or hepatitis or things like that, we'll test for anyway. Um, but we'll also do urine screening on some of the older kids if they come through just in case. And um, I will say, you know, again, about 14 years I've been doing this in person, um, that we have not had many cases at all where we actually caught a sexually transmitted illness. That doesn't mean that those children were not sexually abused, but it has been pretty infrequent that the child has reported it or that we've actually caught evidence of that on physical exam or otherwise. Okay. Oftentimes we have in the referrals a report of a lack of our limited prenatal care. Uh, what do we mean by that and how important is it in the long run for a child? In general, I would say it's, I mean, so again, uh, you know, I was pregnant here in the U.S. and I love my OB colleagues. Um, I would say in general, they're not going to like this answer then. Um, I would say in general. <laughs> You're not though, making friends in general with this one. <laughs> I know, right. Uh, I would say in general, lack of prenatal care is is probably not a huge risk factor. That's, that said, mm -hmm that is the children who survived and did well and were doing well enough to be referred, right? So it's not that we don't need prenatal care. We absolutely do need it. We need prenatal vitamins to prevent iron deficiency and neural tube defects and monitoring. But, you know, if you think about, I'm part of the Korean adoptee wave of the hundreds of thousands of Korean adoptees who were adopted, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and probably none of us got prenatal care whatsoever. And the vast majority of us, I think, are doing you know, well. So uh, in general, I would say prenatal care um, is important for a number of reasons, but for the children who are referred and are doing well at the time of referral, I think prenatal care is not a big risk factor. Mm -hmm. All right. You mentioned the hepatitises, hepatitis B and C, and there's probably a whole host of them that we haven't got letters for, but uh, how common is that? Where is it the most prevalent? And, and is it something that, uh, what is a long-term prognosis? We'll start with B. So hepatitis B and hepatitis C are actually fairly similar because viruses that are usually passed from an infected birth mother to the baby during the birth process or pregnancy at some point. Um, and then once they're there, they like to live in that liver for the lifetime. And your liver doesn't love a virus living there all the time. So your liver gets uh, irritated over time. Um, and uh, in the older studies that we had on hepatitis B, for instance, um, for those who were infected at birth, more than 95% of them would stay infected lifelong and about 25% of them would have a major liver problem sometime in their lifetime, usually in older age. So, um, so hepatitis B is an illness that, you know, 75% of people who have it, they just have it and they monitor it year to year and they do fine and, you know, they pass away of old age sometime or, or other reasons. But I do talk to parents about the liver issues that are potential. Um, very uncommon for anything to happen in childhood, but usually later on in life. And we've had so many advances in the treatment of hepatitis that I'm, uh, we don't right now have a cure for hep B, but I'm optimistic in you know 25 years or 50 years, hopefully we would have a cure. For hepatitis C, uh, we do have a cure now. It's approved for adults, but it's already being trialed in adolescents and younger kids. So hepatitis C, we actually have a cure for. Neither hepatitis B nor hepatitis C are common these days because hepatitis B has a universal vaccination in all mm -hmm. countries that sh they should have access to. 
Um, and hepatitis C is, is pretty uncommon. It used to be much more common in, in areas like the former Soviet bloc countries that were using IV drug use or had transfusions that weren't screened uh, for the you know, birth mothers back in the 70s and 80s or 90s even. Um, but hepatitis C, you, you almost have to take it and inject it into your bloodstream, which is why it was usually transfusion or IV drug use related. So, um, so not very common for either of them these days. Hepatitis C, like I said, is curable now, and hepatitis B has, has a very good long-term prognosis as long as you understand, you know, kind of the theoretical risk. Okay, excellent. At that uh, you mentioned HIV. So it was at a time that we were seeing a fair number of children come over uh, with HIV. What about, uh, what about now? Do we see many kids with that? I have not seen many children come over with HIV. You know, there used to be HIV programs of families adopting kids from exactly. HIV, and I just don't see as many these days. We definitely see um, a couple children a year, maybe, that are referred to us. It doesn't mean, you know, there aren't more children coming with HIV, but we just don't see as many as we used to. Um, in general, uh, so not common to be on referrals. Uh, it can be from any country, but uh, typically, um, some of the countries that have more risk factors in terms of uh, drug use or uh, sexual activity, so, but not commonly spread through sexual activity, uh, typically more through needles or sharing uh, drug use or things like that, so, um, or congenital, uh, passed from the birth mother to a baby. So, um, so we see it probably from uh, countries that are just large, so billion people in India. So, you know, if you have a billion people, the chances of having, you know, one person in there who uh, is referred with HIV is just, you know, a more of a possibility. So we've seen a few kids from India. We've seen a few kids from Colombia. I've never seen a child referred from China or Korea. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist there, but I've just never seen that. They're just not being placed. Um, right. we, we think in terms of HIV now as being a treatable, more of a chronic illness. Is that true though? I mean, there is a, uh, there's a cocktail of drugs. We hear a lot about that. Uh, is it really become a chronic condition? Uh, what's the long-term prognosis now? Yeah, so when I wrote a short article about this with our HIV pediatric specialist here in the Twin Cities, um, her comments were that it is now considered, um, it's no longer considered a life-shortening disease. It actually is considered normal lifespan for, for people who have HIV. Um, it is considered a quality of life issue. So the medications make your body feel different um, than other people, and you do have to take uh, medications every day for the rest of your life um, and their lifestyle modifications. But um, typically it's considered, you know, a normal lifespan disease that uh, people live with, you know, different uh, issues and risk factors. But if you think of a diabetic who has to take daily medications and has to make, you know, different modifications and things like that, um, a chronic disease, you know, like other chronic diseases, it still tends to have some stigma attached to it um, occasionally. And we have seen that kids with HIV and or born to HIV infected birth mothers um, may have slightly increased risk for some learning issues, but not, you know, not serious, not like intellectual disability, but um, minor learning or attention issues, maybe just because of the inflammatory process during pregnancy or with HIV. Um, but these kids generally do very well and live a, a normal lifespan. All right. We used to see congenital syphilis. Uh, how common is that? I don't seem to see it as much. I don't know if that's because these children are not being referred, because I think if it exists, it probably would be known and would be reported. So how common is congenital syphilis and, and what impact does it have? Yeah, so we actually see a decent number of referrals with congenital syphilis listed. Um, 
uh, the Asian countries, I think now about seven years ago, stopped or made um, prostitution illegal, uh, whereas before it was legalized. And, you know, while that comes with some benefits to, you know, not have that be a legal entity, um, it also came with some, some unexpected consequences was uh, that, you know, the prostitution system was not allowing testing or treatment for sexually transmitted illnesses. So uh, things like syphilis spread throughout the country um, much more than we used to see it. So oh, congenital syphilis, um, actually, we've seen a decent amount. It is uh, fully and completely treatable very early on. And all of the kids that are referred to the U.S., at least, it's one of the mandatory tests. So they all get the test. And if they are found positive, then they get the treatment, which is penicillin. And so I'm almost always very optimistic about a child with a history of congenital syphilis that's treated uh, because I've talked to the world's experts uh, about kind of long-term cohorts they've followed and, and they're doing well. We've seen kids with, you know, congenital syphilis referred from uh, Soviet Union block countries for, you know, 30 plus years through my mentor, Dana Johnson, and they're doing very well. That in and of itself, um, you know, obviously if there are other risk factors or things that accompany that, then we take that all into consideration. But congenital syphilis in and of itself, I'm not that concerned about. What about tuberculosis or if the birth mother had tuberculosis? Is that a concern to the child? So again, I'm just not that concerned. Uh, there are different forms of tuberculosis. So there's uh, the traditional tuberculosis, which is kind of the cough and it affects the lungs and uh, you know has kind of taken up residence in the lungs. Then there are other forms of tuberculosis that are what we call disseminated, where they've spread to the brain or the spinal cord or the kidneys or you know other areas of the body. And disseminated TB, you know, has more potential to be riskier to the birth parent and then thus, you know, not support the baby as well and or to spread to the, to the baby. But in general, um, tuberculosis in and of itself, again, kind of the traditional form where it's lung kind of airborne transmitted, I'm just not that concerned because we will treat it. A uh, child with tuberculosis under the age of five or, you know, definitely under the age of five, probably under the age of 10 is not infectious to anyone, uh, even if they have active TB. So I'm, I'm, again, usually very optimistic about kids who had TB or have TB. Mm -hmm. This show, as well as all the many resources provided by Creating a Family at our website, creatingafamily.org, could not and would not happen without the generous support of our partners who not only believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to pre and post adoptive foster and kinship families, but they believe in that mission so much that they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. One such partner is Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer home study only services as well as full service infant adoption, international adoption home studies, and post adoption and foster to adopt programs. You can find them and get more information about them at vistadelmar.org. Okay, and the next one I want to talk about is sometimes we don't have this information. Uh, oftentimes we don't have the information, and that is prematurity. Uh, how often do you see prematurity reported in a, in a referral? So it's like you're saying, prematurity, it's hard to evaluate because prematurity and low birth weight can be combined. They could be separate. You could have mm -hmm. a full term baby who's low birth weight. So it's a little hard to tell, but typically... Um, when we look at kind of the combination of prematurity and or low birth weight, it's very, very common on referrals. And again, pr probably some of that is, um, you know, lack of prenatal care, you know, 
they can't in low resource countries they can't stop a, a you know premature birth like we could you know mm -hmm. have magnesium right. or you know we could do other things right. to help uh, stop or halt or um, hold off a, a low birth weight baby from being born right then so um, lots of different reasons why but uh, very common I would say probably you know 50 to 70 percent of the referrals have some degree of low birth weight or prematurity to them doesn't that matter though the age of the child if you're looking at a child who's come into state care uh, with the age of two, do you have information about whether or not they were a premature birth? So surprisingly, sometimes we do. I don't know sometimes why we actually have record of, you know, like their two month, four month, six month check. They may be in like some sort of state database or, you know, they got checked somewhere yeah, when they were living mm -hmm. with their birth family. Um, oftentimes you're right. We, we definitely don't. I would say though, these days, um, because so many of the children are special needs and have, you know, some sort of medical or other special needs, they're usually being uh, brought into the adoption system or the care system uh, well under a year because the families understand that they just can't care for whatever need this is or they've decided not to parent or, um, so we don't see very many kids these days who are brought into care older than, you know, six months to a year. Okay. So then, so then you're going to have some information if, because at that right. point, even when they're brought into care. Yeah. Estimate. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So now what major uh, issues do you see that we have not touched on? Let's start by talking about what type of birth defects are more common now in the referrals uh, that you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, so because we have countries like China and India, and like I said, a billion people in each one, we see the rarest of all rare diseases and genetic conditions and issues. I mean, one of my closest friends from medical school is a pediatric geneticist, and we'll get together and I'll talk about the different genetic diseases that I've seen. And she's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like she doesn't, you know, as a pediatric geneticist, she doesn't even see these because I'm seeing, you know, the rarest diseases of a pool of 2 billion people, you know, on a routine basis. So um, so it can range the spectrum from the very rarest thing that almost nobody's ever seen to um, we see a decent amount of kids who have uh, clefting still. So China still has a decent number of children. Um, last time I looked, it was about 40% of the referrals had some mention of some form of cleft in their um, huh, I didn't know that. Huh. Um, it was quite high for China for a while. Um, the, we also see uh, congenital heart issues from any country. We see a lot of the prenatal exposures from Korea these days. Uh, we see um, different physical issues, so like missing a limb or missing fingers, uh, usually related to something called amniotic banding. Uh, but it's it's interesting. We're we're seeing a vast range. I mean, it's it's part of why I love what I do, and I think it's such an interesting. Uh, position to review the files, especially with the residents and the learners, the, the student doctor learners that come through, because we're just learning about so many different issues that, you know, we already covered, such as infectious diseases, but really some of the most unusual genetic issues and kind of investigating what we think is, is the prognosis. Interesting. So I think a lot of times we classify cleft lip, cleft palate as a minor special need. Would you agree with that? What are the issues parents need to think about before they accept a referral with cleft lip and cleft palate? Uh, I would say that cleft lip, cleft palate still is usually a, you know, quote unquote minor special need, depending on, you know, I always tell parents I'm, I'm not ever here to judge for them what they consider minor or major. Exactly, because exactly. For every family. 
Um, but in the grand scheme of kind of the referrals that we see, I would say it's still on kind of the milder side of the um, medical needs. Um, that said, you know, just statistically between 30 and 50%, depending on what type of clefting you have, uh, will have an associated syndrome. And syndrome means a genetic issue that caused the clefting and then can affect the spine and the kidneys and the brain and the heart and, you know, just have a lot of other um, factors. And so it's, that's, that's part of the reason why we always advocate, you know, it doesn't have to be us, but some international adoption expert to look at the file and just really assess for things like syndrome or other associated issues with clefting. If it's clefting alone um, and we don't suspect a syndrome, even that can have a wide variety of outcomes, uh, whether it's bilateral or both-sided clefting, whether the nose is caved in or involved at all, if the nose is completely not involved, if it's one-sided clefting, that is, you know, very, very straightforward most of the time for any cleft lip, cleft palate clinic. So, you know, there's just a wide spectrum of kind of expectations, how many surgeries it might take, um, you know, as they grow later on in life to correct that nose or just cosmetically. Uh, so wide spectrum, but I would say if they don't have a syndrome and they otherwise are doing well, then, you know, these children, we've seen so many thousands and thousands of these kids even just come to the Twin Cities area or Minnesota um, over the past couple decades. And, and as a group, they're doing extremely well. Okay. And congenital heart issues run, the, again, a spectrum from extremely involved to those that can be relatively easily repaired. And obviously, you would, before you're considering uh, whether or not you're the right family for this child, you would want to talk with a pediatric cardiologist and have them review the files, as well as a uh, international adoption doctor. Uh, are there any anything else you want to talk about with helping parents make the decision with some type of heart issue? Yeah, I would just say, um, so at least for us, we have pediatric cardiologists who have always very generously donated their time and expertise to us to review any file that has an echocardiogram and, um, you know, even just to give a direction. So, um, you know, this is, you know, life shortening, life ending is not going to be repaired versus this looks amazing and they're going to need, you know, some surgery when they're a later adolescent or adult, but they're doing really well and it looks great. So, um, you know, we are lucky to have uh, pediatric cardiology partners that will help us with those. Um, I would say for sure, either um, get an international adoption doctor to do that with their cardiology partners. Um, cardiologists will look at the heart and that's amazing, but they will not assess the whole child. So yeah, if the child exactly. also has, um, you know, velocardiofacial syndrome or, you know, mosaic down syndrome, they they may or may not be able to, you know, assess the whole child for issues like that. So we just, you know, we have partners, we're very fortunate to have such generous partners that will, that will review those with us. And, and you need to, yeah, so we're not going to go into a great deal of de detail because you do need a, uh, and I agree wholly, wholeheartedly with you that it should not just be a cardiologist, but in addition to an adoption medicine specialist uh, to have a, right. a cardiologist. Okay. Uh, and one thing that I would say that from a parent standpoint to consider anytime you're thinking of adopting a child with a, a physical uh, disability of any sort would be the amount of appointments because anything, any of the things that we're talking about may require a fair number of appointments and how close do you live to the specialist and, and do you have the ability to be taking your child uh, for the for the surgeries, for the uh, follow-ups, for the uh, pre-appointments, all the things that, that might need to be a part of this. So planning your life around and getting some extra help so that you 
can, uh, can fit this in because there usually are a fair number of appointments that are, are involved. Right. Yeah. Um, any other uh, common diseases that we have not talked about that you have seen uh, that are coming in now uh, that you're seeing now that I haven't mentioned? I think we covered the, the really, you know, major issues that we're seeing, you know, prenatal exposures is a big part of it, uh, especially from, you know, some of the countries that we're, we're seeing referrals from. Um, and then other than that, it's really just, the, you know, going through the entire checklist. And again, for India and China, it could be absolutely anything. So just being prepared for, um, you know, any one of those checklist items. Um, you know, we see kids who uh, are little people, so on the kind of the dwarfism spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the, the issues that we see. We see kids with albinism. Um, and so just, you know, really being prepared because if you do say would consider or yes to albinism, you may get a referral the next day because, you know, there are kids waiting right now um, with certain conditions. And so just being really informed and, and again, talking to adoption specialists or, or people who have children with those issues to just get a sense for kind of generally what their lives are like and, and what your life might look like if you decide to move forward. I'm so glad you said that about connecting with other parents who have adopted children with whatever issue you are considering, with whichever mm -hmm. special need you are considering is so powerful uh, because they can give you kind of the down low <laughs> of right. what parenting right. is like. Let's just talk very briefly about albinism and, and dwarfism. Uh, the, uh, are there any, we obviously know with albinism that, that it is a lack of pigment in the skin, but are there other things associated with that parents should consider before they automatically put a check on that or automatically don't check it? You know, the three things that I tell parents about albinism is that one, obviously they look very different. So psychosocial support for, you know, usually white hair, white skin, uh, sometimes red eyes, sometimes blue eyes, depending on the form of albinism. Um, number two, they don't have any natural sunscreen. So you have to be very, very vigilant about sun care and sunscreen and not having, you know, like no hat and no sunglasses and things like that on, on any day, uh, winter or summer. And then um, third, and this is something I feel like a lot of families don't really know about is that um, nearly all kids with albinism are legally blind. Um, and that doesn't mean they can't see, they can almost all see, uh, but the light bounces into their eyes in a different way because of the lack of pigmentation. And so they are almost all legally blind. So meaning white cane support, uh, support for school, for visual impairment, um, and likely won't drive unless cars you know, innovate quite a bit. And uh, so that is the main issue that I think parents are not as aware of uh, when they're thinking about albinism, because it looks like such a physical issue. Exactly. It looks like a minor pigmentation of the skin. And right. so why would I worry about that? Right. Right. And dwarfism. First of all, is dwarfism the correct term to be using now? You know, I think it is in the genetic circles, but um, when we refer to them as people, we usually use the term little people. Gotcha. Okay. So any things that parents, other than the, their physical stature, are there things that parents need to consider other than obviously the social emotional support, the same, similar to what you mentioned with albinism? Yeah, the main issue for little people are um, the way that their joints are together can differ from just how, you know, normal stature people or traditional stature people, their joints get fitted together. So um, I give an example of a student that came through um, with me who's now a friend, uh, 
is the first little person to run and finish the Boston Marathon. And uh, she used to make fun of me when I'd say I ran a whole mile because she could run like 10 miles every day. And she was amazing. <laughs> um, still is amazing. And uh, her husband, who is a pediatrician, uh, uh, needs a wheelchair for longer distance distances. He can walk and, you know, he can even jog and run and do those things. But for longer distances, um, he's just less mobile. Um, so that's a good idea of kind of a spectrum of different mobility levels that people could have um, as little people. And a lot of it has to do with their joints and, you know, how those joints wear and tear, um, sometimes neck issues, hip issues, you know, so joint issues are, and orthopedic issues are usually the biggest thing to consider with um, little people, as long as, you know, they're doing well. And um, obviously there are forms of dwarfism that uh, are associated with other intellectual issues, but the majority of people uh, who are little people have normal brains and normal intellect. And so then it's really kind of more of a physical. Okay, excellent. And last, but certainly not least, how can parents, all right, we're going to, they're going to have to fill out this, the infamous special needs checklist, mm -hmm. considering international adoption. And you and I have mentioned a number of times how important it is to have your referral uh, to, to not only just have your referral, but to be working through this process with someone who specializes in this uh, international adoption specialist, medical specialist, to help. So you're not doing it alone. So how do people find? Now we we know you're associated with the Adoption Medicine Clinic at the University of Minnesota. How do people find living elsewhere? How do they find uh, clinics that where they can find adoption medicine specialists? Yeah, that's actually not as easy a question to answer as it used to be. There used to be many, many international adoption clinics specialized in helping families and seeing internationally adopted kids. Um, but then after kind of the 2000s, with the decline of international adoption, most of them closed. And so there are a few of us left in the country. Most of us have branched uh, or started to include other specialties like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, prenatal exposure diagnosis. Um, seeing foster care and domestically adopted children, um, but there aren't that many of us left in the country, yeah. uh, unfortunately. So, um, I, you know, colleagues at the University of Washington at Seattle, I am always valuing their opinions and their expertise. They're wonderful colleagues. Um, we have great, you know, colleagues that have taken their practices and moved to other areas of the country. So they're kind of, they're kind of moving around a little bit. Um, but if you, you know, look for an uh, international adoption clinic uh, in your state or area, there isn't a national database right now. We were working on one a couple years ago, but it, um, I don't think it ever kind of got launched. Um, but if you Google one for your state and they do have a comprehensive team, meaning they um, have physical therapists and occupational therapists and psychologists and other people that are associated, I would say that that's usually a, a good team because they understand all of the different aspects of international adoption, not just the you know, do they have HIV or not? You know, the infectious disease screening is pretty straightforward. It's the rest that, that is not as straightforward. Um, otherwise, for the pre-adoption work and the pre-adoption consultations and referrals, um, you can send them, you know, wherever, doesn't matter if you're close or not, because we do everything online. Um, as I, I think the University of Washington at Seattle, I think they do as well. So They do, um, yeah. It, you can't necessarily take your child then to be seen if you don't live in, in Minnesota. You can't take your child to be seen, but you can, and, and most often many people do, send their information to, and everything is done via video, uh, uh, telemedicine anyway. So right. you can um, review. Yeah. 
Right. We, you know, last time I looked, I had 12% of my patient population in person, though, that came from states outside the five-state area um, for, for Minnesota. So we definitely see families that come from, uh, oh, I mean, I have a family that flies in from Germany every year. So we, <laughs> we definitely see families that fly in from wherever. So if you have the resources or want to come see us, we're always happy to see them. Excellent. Thank you so much for talking with us today about uh, evaluating the risk factors for international adoption. Let me remind everybody that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption professional. Hey guys, please do us a favor. We would really, really, really appreciate it if you would go over to iTunes and give us a rating. We have just celebrated our 13th year of doing this show. And for the longest time, we had the most ratings and we no longer have the most ratings. And so we really want to change that. So it means a lot to everyone on our staff. We read every single one of them. We Uh, read them at our staff meetings. It means a lot to us. It is quick. We really need you to do it. So thank you in advance. Thanks for joining us today and I will see you next week.